This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and in today's episode, Hannah is taking us to BristolCon. Hello everybody, my name is Hannah Little um, and this past weekend I have had the absolute pleasure of attending BristolCon 2021. BristolCon is an annual science fiction and fantasy convention that happens in the grand city of Bristol and this episode is a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of bits and bobs I recorded throughout the day including a panel that I was on with Gareth L. Powell, which was all about whether we can use science fiction to predict the future. We also have a segment where I wander around the conference and ask different science fiction authors that I happen to find what types of science research they do before writing their novels. But first up, we have an interview that I did with author Adrian Tchaikovsky. Um, who famously won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for his novel Children of Time and has also won the British Science Fiction Association Award for Best Novel for Children of Ruin. So over to myself interviewing Adrian Tchaikovsky. And I should also mention that some of this audio is a little bit noisy um, just because at a science fiction convention there's a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on and so you can't always find a, a perfect environment for recording and um, so apologies for any disruptions to your listening this is for the cosmic shed podcast okay. which is a podcast which is all about science fact and science fiction and everything in between um so uh my first question is um, so I was in your uh, panel when you were talking to Gareth Powell, yeah. and uh, you mentioned that your uh, father is a scientist, um, and so and there's a lot of science within your books generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering if you have a background in science. Um, so I've got a science degree, mm-hmm. uh, zoology psychology degree, um, but honestly, I mean, also that was always academically that was where it very much where my interests were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very much, and biosciences in particular, and since leaving leaving academia, I sort of maintained a keen interest. You know, I listen to podcasts and read articles and things and get a certain amount of my writing inspiration from that. For example, um, the, uh, the Spiders from Children of Time are absolutely inspired by uh, Dr. Fiona Cross's work with uh, the Porsche Jumping Spiders Ooh. in New Zealand. So. Brilliant. Yeah, so my next question was actually going to be about the scientific research that you do uh, for your novels, um, which you again mentioned in the panel where you said uh, you spoke to some entomologists about your spiders. Yeah, I mean, so what, in general, there's kind of like earlier reading that just feeds in, um, where I kind of stumble across stuff and it goes into my head and eventually an idea will kind of accrete around it. And then when I've got the got the idea, if I'm doing something that I feel I need to do the scientific due diligence in, or any other kind of research due diligence, then I will generally find people to chat with because it's the most efficient way I find of actually getting my head around things. And in general, if people know about a particular subject, they're usually extremely happy to. Um... Uh, yeah. So, how do people usually react when you uh, when you say, well, when you? turn up and say hi I'm writing a sci-fi novel 
and they speak to you about your science? They, um, my experience is that people are always extremely happy to expound on their area of um, expertise, to be honest. Yeah. Do you think that's because they see science fiction as almost like a portal to science communication or communicating about their science? Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with the science fiction at all. I think that, in general, people who have a, who who know stuff are usually very happy to be enthusiastic about the things that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and in this case, obviously, it's you know, I, the fact that it's potentially going to you know contribute to a book and so forth, and is an added extra. But I think people just really like talking about their specialist subject. Yeah. Uh I know that from experience. I'm a, I'm a lecturer in science communication, so I uh, specialize in talking to scientists who really like talking about their um, subjects a lot. Um, my next question is stolen a bit from the panel because I thought it was such a good question. One of the audience asked, um, given uh, your dedication to sort of the science and getting the science right um, and kind of speaking to scientists, I think speaks to that. Uh, which bits of, of sci-fi annoy you most when people get the science wrong? Um, I mean, with me, it does tend to be a bioscience thing, and it's usually to do with representations of alien life that are very, very close to human life or very, very close to some form of Earth life. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there was a big fad a while back for cat aliens. Mm -hmm. And they were basically, they were very, they were cat aliens that were also basically human aliens because they were kind of humans with certain personality traits that people ascribe to cats. And they were humans with the heads of cats and they had various earth cat aspects of them. And I'm just like, this is, this is nonsense as far as uh, aliens go. And the thing is, I mean, what I guess I just made, it very much depends on where, what sort of science fiction you're writing because there's a lot of science fiction that that's absolutely fine with. but. If you're basically saying, oh, look at these fantastic aliens, and they're basically just cats that are also people, it's just that's, you know, they, they take, take them away. They're not in any way alien. They are very, very Earth. Um, and there are these, you know, there are genuine philosophical theories, the various uh, levels of philanthropic principle, which claim the universe is basically geared to produce human life. Yeah. Whether it's, um, and there's one that basically says there is a certainly a, a kind of divine intent to produce people, and there's one that basically says, well, just people will just naturally arise because of the way the universe is. Mm -hmm. um, neither of which are, to me, in any way persuasive, and both of which are, are very, the idea of it, 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 it's that old kind of medieval idea of the world being the center of the universe, yeah. and people being the center of the world, and it's all being about us. Yeah. Which, you know, is is a best misguided and at worst a very dangerous way to look at the universe. Absolutely. So it's that kind of thing that annoys me most because you know, and most people will generally be annoyed most about the thing where they have knowledge of knowledge of. Mm -hmm. So my dad gets really annoyed about planetary geology because that's his thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm writing a book at the minute about aliens and linguistics or kind of representations Ooh. of linguistics within science fiction Interesting. and that's a theme that comes up a lot that um a lot of alien languages or the ways that aliens produce languages very human-like um yeah i mean i i came to that one quite late I, I play with that quite a lot in children of ruin i think most mm. um but it, it is it's a remarkably underexplored aspect 
you tend to get either the story is about the linguistics or it's completely hand waved away. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Embassy Town. Embassy, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's one certainly one of the big ones. But obviously, at that point, it is the the, the linguistics element is also actually the point of the story. Yes. Uh, in the panel as well, um, the panel started with uh, what's it about spiders? Yeah. <laughs> because there's a lot of spiders in your work, um, and I've got a question about spiders, but it's a slightly different question, which is. Do you prefer writing from the perspective of human protagonists or these very alien spider-based protagonists? Um, I mean, I, I think it's more than I just like to have a range of protagonists. I mean, I'm writing for a human audience, mm-hmm. so far anyway. Um, so I need to write human relatable stories and sometimes you know you can do a certain amount with a non-human protagonist but there are there are going to be elements that you probably need to bring human characters in to do um but they all i i I like to be able to have a story with a variety of viewpoints and that those viewpoints then all fit together sort of jigsaw wise to form that you know the complete book Mm -hmm. um yeah and then my last question is what's your favorite sci-fi novel Oh, right. Um, That's quite a big question. Well, it's it's one of those questions that I almost certainly would have a different answer to Mm -hmm. each time I came to it. I think, I mean, I'm almost tempted to go for the the animals in that country because that's, but that's kind of a recency effect because I read it very, not that long ago and it had an enormous effect on me. But um, let's throw out uh, Closed in Common Orbit by Becky Chambers this time. which um, I know she's she's best known for its predecessor, the um, Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, but that's the one of hers that's most kind of uh, connected with me, I think. Yeah, it's really uh, struck me how often people mention Becky Chambers' mm. name uh, throughout the whole of BristolCon here. Um, I think her name has come up in absolutely every panel I've I've, came, I've, I've been in so far. Um, her work tends to uh, touch on almost every theme that people might uh, talk about. Um, She's also got some interesting stuff with language and communicating via colour and stuff as well. Although, actually, the the other one that really, um, Claire North, uh, her new one, which is, I think, literally just out, Notes from, from the Burning Age, okay. is incredible. Okay, I haven't read that. That's really good. I, 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 I would be, I'll be disappointed if that is not on some uh, awards lists. Okay, good, good recommendation. Brilliant. Uh, well, that's it then. Thank you so much for your time. No, no, stop. Adrian Tchaikovsky there giving some really excellent answers. Up next, we have an edited down version of some of the discussion uh, on a panel that I was on, uh, which was all about how well does science fiction predict the future. This panel was chaired by Rosie Oliver. And so all questions are her questions. I cannot take credit for them. They were some excellent questions. I've tried to edit it so that um, some of the poorer quality footage isn't there and it makes sense. Uh, I hope it does. On the panel with me were Gareth L. Powell, who has won numerous uh, awards for his science fiction writing um, and his Embers of War trilogy is now being made into a television series. Um, We have Nick uh, Whitehead, who's a lecturer in computer science, and Kevlin Henney, who is also a computer scientist and also a sci-fi writer. 
Our first question is about COP26, where recently Kim Stanley Robinson spoke. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, of course, has written several novels about climate change, the latest being Ministry of the Future, published last year. And the question that the panel were asked was, do you think he and others like him have and will make a difference? Over to Gareth L. Powell. These books are really thick, aren't they? I mean, a, a lot of trees died from them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've read a lot of, of, a lot of what Stan um, has written about climate change. And even in his Mars trilogy back in the 90s, he was, um, there's a whole section set in London, which has been submerged after some Arctic glaciers melted. And um, all the houses are, are sort of, basically there's a balloon that goes down the chimney and goes around the walls and is inflated so the inside of the house is dry. But you look out the window and there's fish and whatever else you find in the Thames. dead floated, floating past, so we're, we're all kind of living un- underwater. Um, so yeah, he's, he's banged this job for a very long time and kind of seemed to have been making an impact in certain sectors of uh, the American kind of political arena. I've seen them quoted in various things. I'm not sure they're mainstream enough to make a, a, a genuine difference. Um, but if, if a headlong rush to climate change is like a comet heading for Paris, um, he's giving it small nudges and you know enough small nudges maybe will nudge it off course. If people are interested in this question of how science fiction narratives have contributed to our understanding of climate change. Um, There's a new book out by my colleague, Mark Bald, called The Anthropocene Unconscious, uh, which is about this very question. The next question was about medical advances and how realistically we think medicine is portrayed in futuristic science fiction. Kevlin Henney. I think actually on a lot of the medical front, um, advances in medicine have been kind of a silent partner in a lot of science fiction is that it's generally assumed cures for cancer and various things like that and uh, you know the devices that will accelerate growth have been a staple for for decades um, uh, devices that will um, assess you you know tricorder style and all the rest of it um, and, and one of this is one of the glorious feedback loops and going to this idea of like does it do we does it predict the future or do we create that future um, Computer scientist Alan Kay said the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And it turns out there's a whole lot of people going through te- who are now technologists who grew up on this stuff and it kind of like went, well, wouldn't that be cool? And um, and they've, they've kind of created these ideas. The idea of a tricorder is an immensely practical idea in certain developing countries. Having that in place, a device that has all the world's knowledge about various things and has basic sensors, yeah, we can do that. Um, the ability to genetic engineer, uh, I don't know, vaccines, for example. Oh, yeah, that feels rough. Huh? And so the point there, I think a lot of this stuff, I think actually medicine has been relatively well represented. Nick Whitehead. Well, the fun thing with the tricorder is there has been over the last 12 months a big um, scientific prize for people developing a tricorder, (laughs) a medical tricorder, and it has to have something like eight different measurements, but the whole point of it is it has to be a remote measuring device, a remote sensing device rather than actually putting sensors on the patients. And they've been doing a great deal of work on this, so I would expect to see the medical tricorder 
in action within five years. I think that's a very, and, and it's interesting because I don't think that that's, uh, the people have been taking their eye off the wall for a lot of these things. And I was surprised visiting a technology company about 10 years ago in India that a lot of the innovations that they were doing was stuff that I would recognize in science fiction, but they were driven by the nature of the market. Because in the West, we can go to a hospital and that's relatively easy. So we have big machines we, which are ridiculously overfunctioned rather than things we can put in our pocket, which seems very science fictional, but actually it turns out it's incredibly practical when you're a traveling doctor um, in certain conditions. And if you can power it from, if you can just set up a solar panel. And so I think we're, I think. Yeah, medicine is, is, is surprised. It's, I don't think it's ever really the main point of the story, but I think it's always there, and it's we haven't noticed how good it's been compared to some of the other things that get represented. Gareth L. Powell. I think some of the drivers of medical advancement are things that maybe we don't consider very much in, in science fiction. I mean, there's war, obviously. Um, the Falklands War gave us huge amounts of new treatments for burns victims because of, of the ships that caught fire there. But some of the other drivers are sport. And I say, you know, we totally deregulate it. Let us create the most weird chimera, genetically engineered, doped up to the eyeballs. Superman, we can and just watch them all explode as they run the 100 metres in three seconds. But that sport, and also porn, has driven a lot of plastic surgery to new and interesting areas. So it's not just the medical advance, it's the societal advance that demands the, the, the medicine. It's the societal ethics that allow the medicine. The next question was all about far future science fiction and which we thought could become a reality and why. Kevlin Heaney. I think leaving aside some of the elements um, within the expanse that take us beyond our solar system, I do think that a um, we have a potential to become a multi-planetary um, uh, civilization, uh, although probably civilizations. I tend to think we will be confined to um, our solar system. I tend to think that most of the optimistic scenarios uh, that we are seeing for um, uh, that are not going to play out. I think the timelines are a lot longer, disappointingly. Um, but, uh, uh, but I do think that that's, that's, that's a future in which we may live in. I don't think we're going to see a United Federation of Planets uh, of any shape or form. I think political schisms are something we're very good at, unfortunately. And I, um, I do see that we are going to do um, some immense damage to ourselves. The question is whether or not we can get past that. Um, and I suspect that we're going to hit a kind of threshold, that we're going to be at this kind of semi-broken, semi-advanced, semi-awesome, but also mixed up level uh, that's going to look a little, it's going to look both familiar and different. In other words, if, I, if you showed me images of 100, 200, 300 years from now, I'd say, those are still human beings. And wow, we're really doing that. But how come those people are suffering this? I think we're gonna, I, I would see I would see that being familiar. Um, yeah, my answer is uh, pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> so mine was optimistic. Is that uh, just to do for, kind of, for contrast here? You know, I, I just mine was the optimistic one. I, just so I know, you know, because yeah. most people would say. That's I just when I read this question, the word realistic, all of the ideas in my head were dystopian. <laughs> uh, so the one um, that I, I picked was M.T. Um, Anderson's Feed, if anybody's read that, mm-hmm. where it's in the future, we've, col- we've colonised the moon, but everybody's brain is plugged into this really capitalist, it was a long time since I read it, so excuse me if I get it a little bit wrong, um, but it's very capitalist and the, the main protagonist kind of can't, ends up not being able to access healthcare because she has gaps in her purchasing history 
which means that they don't have the full data profile to for her to access kind of the essential things that she she needs to live and there's some kind of quite horrific examples of data injustice um where people that aren't be able to access really essential services due to things like credit scores and things like that but um i think that that's a really nice realistic example of where we're going on the moon so <laughs> yeah if you haven't read it i'd, I'd recommend that one because when we get there it'll have a big amazon smile <laughs> yeah exactly that's that. <laughs> um far future i can't think of any i can think of what the far future might be like um but i can't think of I think there's a book by Stephen Baxter called Manifold Space and at one point towards the end of the book um, the main characters find themselves aboard a spaceship that's the size of a coke can being accelerated up to a, a fairly respectable fraction of the speed of light um, and they're on board obviously not physically they only find out later that they're not physical that they're actually just recordings because it's a lot cheaper to yeet a coke can at half a century than a, <laughs> a, a huge great house-sized thing full of plumbing and food and, and monkeys so i can see us spreading out into the universe in that way in, in kind of very small probes fired out maybe or maybe not with the ability to build either biological or artificial bodies once we get there in order to explore um, i think this was touched upon in uh, altered carbon isn't it Mm-hmm. where they send out a bunch of ships who can then grow humans and put minds into them. So I can see that being a, being a fairly plausible <coughs> way to spread out into the galaxy and the, the people who arise from those probes will not necessarily be recognisably human because they will not have that kind of unbroken chain of parent-child, parent-child that's, that's seen us down through, well, all of history. They, that will have been broken and... and there will be another kind of culture and another way of, of, of developing that. So that would be interesting. We could give rise to a, a whole load of different new cultures. We went on to explore whether realistic, futuristic science fiction relies solely on extending current trends in science that we have today. And if not, what else? Kelvin Henney again. I, th- I think that's a... It's an interesting one because I, again, I think it's a, it's one of those um, questions to which the answer is it depends, which is always an unsatisfying answer, but unfortunately it's true. Um, I think that science fiction is not a unified body of thinking with a simple process that many, even a single author will come up with many different reasons for writing a story. And sometimes it is, what if I throw something really nasty at this character and it's a mild tweak of the world as it is, or an inspiration that they had as a child. Uh, or something that they have read. I, you know, I know somebody who reads, you know, regularly reads New Scientist, just looking for, and they're looking for a trend. They're looking for something there. But sometimes they're going for something completely different. They're going for, well, what if I change the social situation? What in what fills the gap? In other words, it's not a trend, um, but it is, or rather, the trend is what do people do in this situation? Um, so sometimes, and I don't even think actually even the call of science is necessarily integral to a lot of these stories. It allows people to sort of just say, well, what would allow me to tell this story? I'm just going to change this little bit of how I see the future or even the past. Um, so, yeah, it's a very much, it depends. And in all of these cases, what makes the story realistic tends not to be the technical aspects. It, it's amazing what we'll swallow as human beings. 
um, uh, uh, for stories, what we will believe, as long as something feels like it's plausible, and normally that comes back to the, the people in it. So therefore, curiously enough, I think the realism in science fiction still comes back to um, the character elements rather than necessarily the technological aspects. Um, yeah, I think I agree that the answer is sometimes, but, but not always. And I, 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 what I really love is examples where science follows science fiction rather than science fiction following directly from um, trends within science. Some really lovely examples being um, the Universal Translator, which is exists in all sorts of sci-fi for uh, and has done for decades, and we're slowly getting more and more towards such a thing for human languages. Though I, I disagree that it would work for any sort of alien communication. Um, but while we're talking about alien communication, there's lots and lots of examples in, in linguistic research where like current um, linguistic science has directly come from ideas in science fiction, thinking about how our ancestors first started speaking. Um, a lot of that work uh, derives from trying people kind of trying to solve that problem on paper in science fiction when we talk about meeting aliens for the first time and how do we start that uh, how do we start that communication um, arrival being a beautiful example but um, examples have existed uh, again for decades um, but people have made that connection now and quite a lot of experimental uh, psycholinguistics now gets pla uh, participants into the lab and we tell them you've landed on an alien planet. Uh, and you must <laughs> you must start having a, a communication with these aliens, and through those um, experiments, we're not really experimenting on what they're going, how they're going to talk to aliens. We're experimenting on how you solve this problem of commu establishing a communication system um, where you've got no shared knowledge with each other and no shared existing language, right? Which is a really um, interesting uh, question from our evolutionary past. Gareth L. Powell again. I, I think I disagree with the uh, the premise of the question in that I don't think it is science fiction's job to predict the future. I think what science fiction does, it's more kind of projecting ourselves into realms of possibility than it is predicting what it will be like in any kind of accuracy so it's more kind of it's more kind of collective anxiety than it is a, a planning tool oh i like that <laughs> um in that we are we are just kind of freewheeling through all these terrible things that might happen and how it will feel and what will go on instead of having a rational you know and i mean completely rational predictions of the future would be probably boring as fuck because there comes a point beyond which the future would see it would have no understandable relevance for us and it would be very very difficult to establish an interesting character or, or coherent story within that i mean if we're looking at to go back to what people were banging on about a few years ago the singularity the very fact that it is a singularity is means that we cannot predict what the world will be like after it with any sense of confidence so in order to create a story and what we're doing is telling stories and telling stories about ourselves and about what, what might happen to us because the oldest thing of story is the three main questions of life are who are we what are we what are we going to do while we're here and where are we going when we die and science fiction kind of messes around with all three of those quite nicely so in effect 
science fiction authors are brainstorming for the for the future of humanity. Yes, we're we're the humanity's voice that whispers in your ear at four a.m. going, "Well, what happens if this goes on?" <laughs> and on that beautiful thought, there, we'll leave the panel and move to the final part of this Bristol Con special which was me randomly finding science fiction authors and asking them what science research they do before they write their sci-fi novels. I'm here with the wonderful Katrina Sylvie, who is author of the book Meet Me in Another Life, uh, which is out now in hardback uh, from Harper Voyager. Hello, Kat. Hello. Um, We're asking uh, sci-fi authors today, what scientific research do you do uh, when you are uh, preparing to write a new science fiction novel? Um, so I have two answers to this question. One is the kind of real answer, which is that um, there is some sort of proper legit scientific research that I did for Make Me Another Life, but I can't tell you what it was because it will spoil the book. Um, so sorry about that, uh, but I can tell you. so. Um, the idea of the book is that it's the same two characters who meet again and again in different versions of their lives and each time they've had different experiences that have turned them into um, kind of slightly altered versions of themselves. So I guess I did do some research into um, what we know about personality and how personality is shaped um, probably partly by some stuff that's innate, that's maybe genetic, um, and uh, but also by, by early experiences. and. The kinds of effects that early experiences can have on um, a person's yeah kind of self and personality so yeah that's that's science right that's social science it's still science absolutely that's science yeah. we take a broad view of what is and isn't science i'm very glad to hear it next i spoke to gareth l powell again um i mentioned earlier that he had uh, he had some awards but he has in fact won the british science fiction association uh, best novel award twice now so it was interesting to hear what he had to say. Um, the absolute honest answer is very, very little, as little as I can possibly get away with. As long as I can make the science seem plausible and I don't contradict something obvious, like I make Jupiter revolve the wrong way or something, um, I'm happy. My, my focus is telling an interesting um, and character-based story. Um, so the science is, if I don't know how the science works, I'll assume the characters know how it works. Um, so I'm, I'm not writing a textbook, I'm, I'm trying to write something entertaining and gripping. It turns out that Gareth L. Powell's fiancé, J. Diane Dotson, is also a science fiction author, so I asked her the same question. So I'm here with Diane Dotson, um, who is has a background in science yourself. Yes. Um, so we're asking all science fiction authors today uh, what science research you do um, before you do your writing. Well, since I am also a science writer in addition to being a science fiction writer, part of my job, and in fact most of my job, involves research, and so I know where to look for that. And it does get incorporated in my fiction sometimes, but not always. You don't need to do terribly much research and make it very hard science, but it does help to have a grounding in the real world. And what I have found is that you can use Google Scholar you know, for journal articles and sift through those. It really helps to sign up for biotech news, space news, ocean news. And like you get newsletters with all these news things that get collated that you wouldn't see otherwise. And it's really fun to go and go through those. Yeah. 
and say, oh, you know, God, there's this new exoplanet that's doing this crazy thing, or this species has been discovered that does this, and I use all of that as inspiration for character design or animal design or for environmental design, and it's a lot of fun. Do you have any nice examples from perhaps your most recent book? So I, in my third book, Accretion, my The Questrazon Saga is a science fiction and fantasy mix. So in the third book, Accretion, I had a character that was a really enigmatic telepathic mage of another species, is Mahelkian, and I had finished an article that I was doing for science writing job, and it was about feather stars. Mm. And I it kind of just appeared to me that, that he should have like a feather star type appendage on his chest. And feather stars look like ferns, but they're animals in the sea. Fascinating creatures. So I was inspired by, by my day job of being a science writer and researching this and being fascinated by this real animal in our oceans mm -hmm. to make this alien part of its body, you know. And so that was a really fun thing that I did. So that, that's just one aspect, but I've had a lot of fun with this throughout all the books. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we have it. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun at Bristol Con, spoke to a lot of amazing people and had a lot of amazing chats about science fact, science fiction and everything in between. Um, so I really, really hope that uh, we can go back next year. If I can't go back, somebody from the shed should go back um, and we can have another special episode of The Cosmic Shed. Thanks, Hannah. Sounds like an idea to me. And we'll be back very soon when we'll be having a very, very special episode because we'll be talking to the man behind that footage of the hedgehogs that we've all been enjoying on Winterwatch this past week or so. Because those hedgehogs were filmed just outside the very shed. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.